123, testing 123, this is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part three of Magic and Mormonism. In this series of podcasts, I have been reviewing my career as an amateur magician and looking at certain principles of stage magic and close-up magic and how some of those principles can illuminate events in early church history. In the last episode, I talked about an individual named Lynn Bryson who came to our stake in Austin, Texas back in the early 1980s and as part of his presentation about the evils of rock and roll, introduced the audience to the concept of back masking, the idea that if you take certain rock and roll songs and play them backwards, there is a hidden message. In another part of that podcast, I also talked about the idea that seeing is believing, and I used the illustration of the arm guillotine trick that I performed for a New Year's Eve dance at the same stake center in Austin, Texas in the latter part of the 1980s. There I talked about how if you prime the audience to see something, then it is much more likely that they will see what it is you tell them they're going to see than what they would see if they just watched the trick without any help from you. And I've got to say, upon reflection, that I think with Lynn Bryson's back masking, not only is seeing believing, but hearing is also believing. Because I honestly think that, for me at least, sitting in the audience, if Lynn Bryson had just played those segments of back-masked songs without any introduction and without any suggestion as to what it is that I would hear being said, I probably would not have heard much of anything, frankly. That's why it was essential for Lynn Bryson to tell the audience what it was that we would be hearing before he played the backmasking segment. It was through his helpful suggestion in this regard that the audience, including me, was led to hear what it was that he wanted us to hear. Something else about this strange phenomenon of backmasking is that it does not seem to have simply come out of nowhere that some clever and demonic rock and roll songwriter came up with the idea of hiding demonic messages in the songs he wrote that played forward have one meaning, but play it backward and you're going to get the real meaning, the bad meaning, the demonic meaning. And the reason I say that is because it occurs to me that the idea of having something said in English and then played backward and having a different message that can be heard, coupled with the idea that this kind of message is associated with satanic or demonic influence, starts as early as 1973, which would have been a full decade before Lynn Bryson's presentation that I attended in Austin. Now, what happened in 1973, in December of that year, if memory serves, was that the movie The Exorcist was released. It was, of course, based upon a very famous book, but the movie was a cultural phenomenon. And in that movie, if you recall, Father Damien Karras is investigating a potential demonic possession of a little girl named Reagan O'Neill. He is skeptical, but at the insistence of Reagan's mother, pursues his investigation, and he finds out that one of the signs of true demonic possession is the ability of the subject to speak in a language that the subject has never studied. Father Karras takes a tape recorder with him 
on one of his visits to Reagan and tape records what it is that she says. And at one point, she begins babbling in some strange language that Father Karras does not recognize. Father Karras takes the tape back to the linguistics department at Georgetown University for examination and is subsequently told that yes, this tape does contain a language, but it is actually not a foreign language, it is English. And the reason that Father Karras can't understand it is because it is backward. So played forward, the tape was simply gibberish, but played backward, there was a message that could be heard in English. It was a demonic message with an evil import. It had something to do with your mother cooks socks in hell. So I'm not saying that the exorcist was the cause of the backmasking phenomenon in the 1980s, although it may or may not have been. All I'm saying is that there is a precedent for exactly this type of idea as early as 1973 with the release of the movie The Exorcist. For this next story, I want to revisit my mission to Japan, where I served from 1979 to 1981. After I had been there for at least a year, I became a senior companion and I was assigned a series of new missionaries, what we called green beans. And one of those green beans that I was assigned to was actually named Elder Green. I was the district leader in this particular apartment, which housed four missionaries. In my mission, being a district leader was a title, which really all it meant was I was responsible for paying the bills in the apartment. And on top of that, I suppose I was responsible for reporting statistics for the week up the line to the zone leaders who would then report them up to the APs, who would then report them to, drumroll please, the mission president. At that time, it never occurred to me that the mission president would be doing the same thing and reporting those statistics up his chain of authority, which would ultimately lead to Salt Lake City. But I had this wonderful trick that I liked to perform. It was a real crowd favorite, and I think one of the reasons it was is because it involved fire. So I gathered all the missionaries, by which I mean the other three missionaries, into the kitchen one evening, and I performed this trick which basically goes as follows. I have the spectator, which in this case was Elder Green, select a card from the deck, show it to the other two missionaries, put it back in the deck so that I cannot see it. I then give him a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, blank piece of paper, have him write the name of the card on the piece of paper. My back is turned at this time. I cannot see the card he selected. I cannot see the name of the card that he's writing on the piece of paper. And so that I can continue not to see the name of the card on the paper, I have him fold it up in quarters, then hand it to me. I apply a flame to the corner of the paper, get it burning nice and hot, and then drop it into a pan where it completes its combustion until it is nothing but black ash. I then tell the audience that because this piece of paper has been burned, I cannot possibly now read the name of the card that was on the piece of paper. But if the audience will join with me in a psychic experiment and concentrate on the name of the card, then maybe, just maybe, I can get the name of the card to be revealed in a different way. I roll back the sleeve on my left arm because believe me, this is gonna get really messy really fast. I then pick up the ashes in my right hand and begin rubbing it across the surface of my left forearm, which is now exposed. I tell the audience to keep thinking of the name of the card while I rub the ash back and forth across my forearm. And believe it or not, as they concentrate, the name of the card appears on my forearm in the ash that I've been rubbing across it. Well, it was an amazing trick and everybody was suitably impressed, especially Elder Green, because Elder Green actually believed 
that what I was saying was true, that this was actually a psychic experiment, that it was not a magic trick. Because really, how could it be a magic trick? I mean, it totally fooled him, didn't it? He couldn't figure out how it was done. Therefore, it must be by magic. And the entire next day when we were out tracting, Elder Green kept talking to me and saying, was that really a psychic experiment or was that a trick? No, I kept assuring him the entire day it was not a magic trick. It was really something that was psychic. And Elder Green began to get excited because if this was something that was psychic, if he performed the trick too, or in other words, if he did the exact same steps that I had done, then maybe he would receive a similar result and he could get the name of the card to appear on his forearm in ash. Seeing no harm in his giving it a try and also seeing the potential for a great deal of fun, I encouraged him throughout the day that indeed if he followed the same steps that I had the night before, then he very likely could have the same result. Well, that evening, Elder Green was very excited. He wanted to perform this experiment. And while he was setting things up in the kitchen, I went and rounded up the other two missionaries. And I think I whispered to them as I did so, you have got to get a load of this. Now, everybody keep a straight face, okay? So we come into the kitchen and we are the audience. And Elder Green now goes to the exact same steps that I had gone through the night before. I mean, if you want the same result, you just do the same steps that lead up to that result, right? Well, he had one of us select a card, show it to everybody else. He then had us write the name of the card on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, fold it in quarters. He took it, burned it, put it in the pan until it was reduced to ashes. And then the hilarity really ensued. I don't know about the other two missionaries, but I was having a very difficult time keeping a straight face throughout this procedure. Well, Elder Green picked up the ashes and started rubbing them across his left forearm. And strangely, nothing seemed to be appearing in the ashes. Well, not to be deterred, Elder Green picked up more ashes and began rubbing them even more vigorously across his forearm. And ashes were going everywhere, all over the floor, all over his white shirt. That's not going to be easy getting out. And just about the time that Elder Green was realizing that it wasn't going to work in spite of his best efforts, all three of us other missionaries couldn't hold it any longer and just started laughing our heads off. At that point, Elder Green realized that he had been had and said to me kind of angrily, Eat rocks, Elder Radio Free Mormon. That was his expression. Eat rocks. It wasn't the only time that I heard that expression from him while he was my companion. But looking at this experience and comparing it to church history, Elder Green was definitely convinced that I had the power to make the name of the card appear on my arm in ash, that it was a psychic experiment. It wasn't guaranteed to work, but if everybody concentrated and did their part, then it was something that could be replicated. He believed that. And the reason he believed is number one, because he was gullible, but number two, because he didn't understand how it was that I could do it by trickery. I presented it as something that was not done by trickery. And number three, for an entire day, I assured him that it was not trickery and that he could do it himself. Now at the point where he was failing to perform the trick and he's got ash everywhere and no name of the card is appearing on his arm and all three of us missionaries start laughing, that's when he realizes that he's been had. That's when he realizes that it was a trick. That's when he realizes that it's not something that he could replicate just by following the same steps. But I sometimes wonder what would have happened 
If the missionaries, including myself, had not laughed? What if I had not made a joke of it? What if I had expressed astonishment to Elder Green that it did not work, and then came up with some other excuse as to why it was that Elder Green could not perform this particular effect, other than the fact that it was a trick when I did it? What if I told him that, oh, I don't know, he didn't study it out in his mind enough, that he thought the card name would appear without any effort on his part, that in some way he had failed, and that is why the name of the card did not appear on his arm. And of course, I think back to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and the translation of the Book of Mormon, and specifically sections 8 and 9 of the Doctrine and Covenants where Oliver Cowdery wants to try his hand at translating. And Joseph Smith says, okay, be my guest. But then Oliver Cowdery fails to be able to translate. And Joseph Smith tells him, well, the problem is, is that you thought God would give it to you without any work on your part. You needed to study it out in your mind. The fault is with you, dear Oliver, not in the translation. I expect if I had taken that tack with Elder Green, he might to this very day still believe that I had performed that trick by legitimate supernatural means. Now I want to talk about the subject of confederates. Confederate is a term that sounds strange to people outside of magic or outside the Civil War, perhaps. But the word confederate is used to describe another person other than the magician who is part of the audience who helps the magician perform the trick. There are a number of magic tricks that you can do with confederates. As you might imagine, if you have somebody who's in on the trick, the world opens wide to the kinds of magic tricks that you can perform. By this, I don't mean somebody who's part of the team, somebody who's up there on the stage with you throughout the show. I mean somebody who is in the audience, who is called out of the audience, seemingly at random, but who is not only in on the trick, actually makes the trick work. Now, it may sound strange to you, but I have never liked tricks with confederates. To me, it always seemed to be cheating. I know that sounds funny because, of course, magic is all about cheating and lying in order to amaze and astound. But even so, having somebody else help me out in performing a magic trick always seemed to be a little bit devious, even for me. But having said all of that, one of the most amazing tricks I ever performed, and when I say amazing, I'm judging that by the reaction of the audience. One of the most amazing tricks I ever performed involved a confederate. This was back 30 years ago when I worked at the prosecutor's office. There were about eight or 10 prosecuting attorneys in the office at the time, and we had a pretty close bunch. We would have a gathering of some sort every couple of months or so, whether for somebody's birthday or some other special occasion. And before every one of these get-togethers that we had, the elected prosecutor, the head of the office, whose name was Mike, always came to me and said, Radio Free Mormon, I would like for you to perform a magic trick at the next gathering. Mike was kind of a fan of magic, and he always liked to have me perform something when the prosecutor's office got together. So let me tell you the trick that I performed. We were all together in the conference room, and I got everybody who was present, which ended up being around 10 or maybe even 12 people, in a circle and all hold hands. I then borrowed a ring from one of the people. And actually, I remember that the ring I borrowed was from the chief civil deputy who had graduated from Princeton University and had a class ring. So I'm using a Princeton class ring for this experiment. Once again, it's an experiment, right? It's not a magic trick. Wink, wink, 
nudge, nudge. And what I did was I took my hand and I put it out in front of me. So the palm of my hand is face up in the middle of this circle. I then took the Princeton ring, put it in the palm of my hand, and then took a handkerchief and placed it over my hand so that you could not see the ring. I then allowed everybody, and I mean absolutely everybody, to take one hand and reach up under the handkerchief and confirm for themselves that the ring was still there. The person on my left did it, then the next person did it, then the next person did it, and so on around the circle until finally the person on my right had reached up under the handkerchief and confirmed to everybody present that the ring was still there. At that point, I asked everybody to concentrate because we were going to try and send this ring into another dimension. For some reason, I had the word aport. It was going to aport into another dimension. Not transport, but aport. I don't know if that's a real word, but that's actually not very important. It just sounds technical enough to maybe be a real word. Maybe aport is what happens when something goes into another dimension. Anyway, we're all focusing on this ring and trying to get it to aport. It's still on the palm of my hand, still under the handkerchief. And I say that the ring is getting warmer. It's getting warmer. I then announce that I think the ring has aported into another dimension. I have another member in the circle reach up, pull the handkerchief off my hand, and indeed, the ring has disappeared. Well, everybody was absolutely astonished. And I remember John, who was the chief civil deputy, laughing and saying, okay, give me my ring back now. And I couldn't give him his ring back then. I had to say, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry, it aported into another dimension. And he laughed and said, no, really, give me my ring back. I told him to give me some time and maybe I could find it for him in that other dimension and get it back. And thankfully, the ring showed up on his desk later that afternoon. Now, you may be wondering how on earth I performed this minor miracle, which is still talked about today among those who were present to witness it. That's how amazing it was. Well, the answer is simplicity itself, and indeed, you may have figured it out since I introduced this segment by talking about the idea of Confederates. Since the elected prosecutor, whose name was Mike, liked magic so much, I decided to include him in this trick as my Confederate. He was the individual in the circle who was standing to my immediate right. So, everything I told you happened just the way I described it. I put the ring on the palm of my hand. I put the handkerchief over the palm of my hand. And then I had everybody starting at my left reach up under the handkerchief to confirm to everyone else that the ring was still there. And it worked around the circle, everyone doing the same thing, until we got to the person on my immediate right, who, if you'll recall, is Mike, my confederate, who reaches up under the handkerchief, confirms to everyone that it is there, just like everyone else has done before him, except that when he removes his hand out from under the handkerchief, he takes the ring with him. Now, Mike was a great choice to have as my confederate because number one, he's the head of the office. Number two, he can keep a secret. And to my knowledge, he has kept that secret till this day. I guess I'm the one who's blowing the secret on this. And so no one suspected him of being involved. But there's something even more important about this trick. I had heard of this trick since I was a little kid. I never performed it as a little kid because the secret was so obvious. Obviously, the last person who feels the ring is the person who takes the ring away. And so I never performed it until I was in my 30s in the prosecutor's office. I have performed this trick once and only once, and that was the time I performed it. Now, here's the other psychological aspect of this trick that is very, very important. 
If I present this trick as a dumb trick that I learned as a kid and nobody would fall for it, but I go ahead and I perform it anyway, then the odds go way up that people are gonna figure out how I did it. But I don't present it that way. I present it as the most amazing trick that has ever been performed. In fact, there's a story I tell about it which is almost certainly apocryphal and it involves Houdini. I introduced it as a trick that was performed for Houdini and Houdini was so amazed by this trick that he offered to buy it for $100, which was a whole lot of money back in the 19-teens and 1920s. I really emphasize this story at the outset because psychologically speaking, if an audience believes that what they're going to see is an amazing trick that even fooled Houdini, then they are less likely to figure out how it's done when the answer is so obvious. If the trick fooled Houdini, it could not be done by an obvious means. It must be something really amazing, something really unobvious. So if a trick or an effect is described as being so great, the human mind thinks it can't be simple and therefore it skips to the impossible or divine as the answer. If you present something as very simple, then the mind does not skip the simple solution. It goes right to the simple solution because you've already told them that it's simple. I think this basic principle has a lot of application in church history. And one of the things I think about, which isn't just historical, it's even current, is a discussion of the translation of the Book of Mormon and of the contents of the Book of Mormon itself. It is very common to hear leaders in the church talk about how amazing, how complex, how profound the Book of Mormon is in order to highlight the idea that Joseph Smith could not possibly have come up with it. And I myself, as an apologist, made that argument on a number of occasions. It was only relatively recently in the last number of years that I began to realize that the Book of Mormon is not that complicated. And especially when we're talking about the theology and the doctrinal sermons in the Book of Mormon, there's a great deal of repetition of basic themes, and the theology that is taught in his pages is very similar, if not identical to, the Methodist theology of Joseph Smith's day. In other words, the ancient Nephite prophets whose sermons are recorded in the Book of Mormon appear to have been 19th century Methodists. And it was when I began to realize that the Book of Mormon was not as complicated as I had originally thought that my mind was better able to go to the simple explanation that Joseph Smith came up with it himself. As long as I was overawed with how incredible, how marvelous, how complex, how profound the Book of Mormon was, I was less able to go to the simple explanation as to how it was produced and more likely to go to the explanation that it must have been produced by supernatural means or even divine means. Just like the trick I did at the prosecutor's office 30 years ago when I made a Princeton class ring A-port into another dimension. And now in this last part of the podcast, I want to talk about the psychology of belief or the psychology of miracles. Because miracles may not just happen independently on their own. There may actually be a large psychological component on the part of the observer that makes the event seem miraculous. And here I want to talk about a couple of translation projects that Joseph Smith did. The first is the Joseph Smith translation, not chronologically, just the order in which I'm going to speak about them. The first is the Joseph Smith translation, and the second is the Book of Mormon translation. We know that Sidney Rigdon 
was the principal scribe for Joseph Smith in his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. We also know from research that has been published in the last few years that Joseph Smith appears to have used at least one source for his Joseph Smith translation, and that source was the Adam Clark Bible Commentary. It may have been more books than just the Adam Clark Bible Commentary, but at least that commentary, which was a multi-volume publication, was almost certainly used. And I did a podcast about the research that demonstrates that a while back. But I want to take it a step further now. Because if Joseph Smith used, as he almost certainly did, books, i.e. Bible commentaries, in order to conduct his Joseph Smith translation, his scribe, Sidney Rigdon, must have been aware of this fact. Now, I know some people suggest that Joseph Smith must have had a photographic memory. All I can say is that's extremely rare. All I can say is I don't see any evidence of that in Joseph Smith's life. I think it is highly unlikely that he was studying these books independently of his scribe and then coming to the translation session and remembering what he had studied and dictating it into the text of his Joseph Smith translation. And yet, at no point of which I'm aware, does Sidney Rigdon ever mention that Joseph Smith used books when he was doing the Joseph Smith translation? That's one translation project. The second translation project, which happened earlier, is the Book of Mormon translation, and specifically when Emma Smith was the scribe. We know from reading the Book of Mormon that the Bible is quoted copiously in the pages of the Book of Mormon, especially chapters of Isaiah, especially three chapters from Matthew comprising the Sermon on the Mount, and even some Malachi gets thrown in during Jesus' visit to the Nephites. But the passages of Isaiah are so lengthy that it beggars belief, at least to me, to think that Joseph Smith memorized all of these passages and then dictated them from memory out of his hat. Indeed, even faithful LDS scholars such as Sidney B. Sperry have proposed for many, many years that Joseph Smith had a Bible with him and that when he came upon something in his translation that was going to quote the Bible, that he opened the Bible and simply read from the Bible until he was inspired to change it from time to time from the way it appeared in the authorized version. So I think we can be fairly confident that Joseph Smith had a Bible at a minimum with him when he was translating the Book of Mormon. I mentioned Emma Smith being one of his scribes, and she was a scribe for a period of time, but she was certainly present during most of the translation, even when she was not acting as the scribe. Now here's the strange thing about Emma. She never mentions this either. In fact, none of the witnesses ever mention that Joseph Smith had a Bible with him when he was dictating the Book of Mormon. And the question becomes, why wouldn't they mention it if it was present? Wouldn't that be an important part of the story? But whereas Sidney Rigdon simply doesn't mention the presence of a commentary during the Joseph Smith translation, and whereas the witnesses to the Book of Mormon translation never mention a Bible or any other papers being present that Joseph Smith used in his translation, Emma Smith goes further and affirmatively states that Joseph Smith did not have any books or papers with him when he was translating. In 1879, Emma Smith answered some questions in a formal interview session. The interview was conducted by her son, Joseph Smith III, and he asked her questions about the translation of the Book of Mormon. This interview was given a few months before she passed away. And in that interview, Emma Smith stated that Joseph Smith had neither manuscript nor book to read from as he was translating. And she said if he had had anything of the kind, he could not have concealed it 
from me. Now this 1879 statement from Emma Smith has always been of interest to me and mainly because there are certain things in it that have historically been used by the church and quoted by the church because they were considered faith-promoting by the church. But by the same token, there were other aspects of this same interview that were not repeated by the church when it was published in their correlated materials, things that were considered to not be faith-promoting. And the main part that was considered to be not faith-promoting was the fact that Emma Smith said that Joseph Smith translated with his head in the hat. Here's the part of that statement. The question was asked by her son, Joseph Smith III, what is the truth of Mormonism? And Emma answered, I know Mormonism to be the truth and believe the church to have been established by divine direction. I have complete faith in it. In writing for your father, I frequently wrote day after day, often sitting at the table close by him, he sitting with his face buried in his hat, with the stone in it, and dictating hour after hour, with nothing between us. The next question is, had he not a book or manuscript from which he read or dictated to you? Answer, he had neither manuscript or book to read from. Question, could he not have had and you not know it? Answer, if he had anything of the kind, he could not have concealed it from me. So here we have an interesting situation. We have a situation where Emma Smith is claiming that Joseph Smith never used any book or manuscript in translating or dictating the Book of Mormon, and yet we know with almost certainty that he must have had a book or papers from which he was translating, at a minimum, the Bible. This is what has led some people to surmise that Joseph Smith had a photographic memory in order to make it harmonize with this statement by Emma Smith. But I'm not sure that's the right way to go. Because remember, Emma Smith in these last interviews also claimed that Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy, even though she knew darn good and well that he had practiced polygamy and it was a source of great sorrow and anguish to her personally. So we already know that Emma may not be the most reliable narrator of history and her involvement in early Mormonism, even parts and aspects of early Mormonism in which she was intimately involved. But if my supposition is correct, that Emma Smith did know that Joseph Smith used books, at least the Bible, and maybe even other papers, why does she claim that he did not do so? That's the question. And it also bears on the question of why it is that none of the witnesses to Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon ever mentioned his using a Bible or other books or commentaries or any other papers that he might have had present. Now, some have suggested that Emma Smith might have been a confederate of Joseph Smith, or that Oliver Cowdery might have been a confederate of Joseph Smith, or that Sidney Rigdon might have been a confederate of Joseph Smith. In other words, Joseph Smith is pulling off a trick, and he enlists the aid of these people who are in on the trick to help fool others into believing that the Book of Mormon was divinely translated. I myself don't really go for that theory, mainly because it's one thing to get one person involved in a conspiracy like that. And if you're lucky, that one person will keep the secret, like my old boss, Mike. But as soon as you start adding more and more people into your conspiracy, the odds are going up astronomically that somebody is going to blab about the secret 
as the years roll on. So here's what I'm going to propose happened. And this is pure speculation on my part, but I think it lines up with what I have come to understand about human psychology. As to the translation of the Book of Mormon, Emma knows it is a miracle. She knows that her husband Joseph is translating the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. She is firmly convinced in his prophetic gift. She also knows that there are some things that Joseph Smith did while he was translating the Book of Mormon that might look kind of odd to an outsider. Something that might look like Joseph Smith wasn't relying exclusively on divine power. Something like having, oh, I don't know, a Bible or other books or even papers present as he was dictating. So in my theory, Emma has observed the books, the Bible, the papers possibly, that Joseph Smith had present that he was using to dictate the Book of Mormon, and yet she had managed somehow to resolve it in her mind that this was the way that God worked. This is the way that translation was done. And in her mind, the presence of books and papers did not detract from the miraculous nature of the translation. Now, when the time comes for Emma or other witnesses to share their testimony about what it was they saw and heard during the translation process, their goal is to make other people understand how miraculous it was so that other people will know that the Book of Mormon was divinely translated in the same way that Emma or others know that the Book of Mormon was divinely translated. Now, whereas Emma has already resolved the presence of books and papers in her mind to be consistent with divine translation, she is also aware that if she includes that detail when she's relating the experience to other people, that they will be less likely to agree with her that the translation process was divinely inspired. And therefore, she omits it from her recitation. And in fact, in 1879, which is quite a long time after the translation process was going on, in fact, it was 50 years later, she affirmatively states that there were no books or papers used by Joseph Smith in the translation of the Book of Mormon. The point I'm driving at is that Emma Smith was a true believer in the divine translation of the Book of Mormon. And as a witness to the process, she also saw some things that she knew that other people might find inconsistent with her belief. And therefore, in order to get other people to believe the same way that she believed, which is the whole point of the missionary program and the conversion process, she omitted details and sometimes affirmatively misstated facts in order to help other people realize the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God in the same way that she knows the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God. So Emma Smith was not lying in order to intentionally perpetuate a fraud on the public. She was lying because she knew that the Book of Mormon was true. As to the other witnesses who simply don't mention the presence of a Bible or books or papers during the translation process, they're doing the same thing. They are simply trying to not give reasons to other people to doubt the miraculous nature of the Book of Mormon. They know it is miraculous. They have resolved this in their mind, and therefore they are going to omit this detail from their recitation of events in order to help other people realize the Book of Mormon is as divine as the witnesses themselves already know it to be. On the issue of plural marriage, it seems that the same kind of thing was probably going on in Emma's mind when she denied at the end of her life that Joseph Smith had ever practiced 
plural, marriage. There are a number of other factors going into this particular denial, which are beyond the scope of this podcast, but at least one of them is likely that she found the practice of polygamy on the part of her husband reprehensible. But at the same time, she also believed with all her heart that her husband was a prophet of God. And therefore, she omitted that fact from her recitation of Joseph Smith's life and affirmatively denied that he even practiced plural marriage. She knew Joseph Smith was a prophet, She also knew that his practice of plural marriage would make other people likely think he was not a prophet, at least the people she was talking to, in the reorganized church. And therefore, in order to help them understand the truth that Joseph Smith was a prophet, she affirmatively stated that he never practiced plural marriage. The goal isn't to lie or to deceive. The goal is to help other people realize the truth that you have come to understand for yourself. And if certain facts get in the way of other people realizing the divine nature of Mormonism, or the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith, then those facts need to go by the wayside. And this brings us up to present-day Mormonism. It is now February of 2022, and the leaders of the church continue to practice today what they have practiced ever since the inception of the LDS Church, which is this exact same kind of psychology, the psychology of belief, the psychology of miracles. Now, from time to time, we hear people claim that the leaders of the church know the bad stuff about the church. They know the inconsistencies, the problems in church history. And by the way, there used to be a time when the leaders of the church could claim plausible deniability on that front, and frequently apologists were quick to claim it for them, that they were simply too busy running the church to do deep dives in history and find out all the messy issues in Mormonism. But that time is past, and the reason why is because of the gospel topic essays. There are about 13 essays that were published on the church website from around 2013 to 2015, I believe, covering almost all of the difficult issues in church history. Now, the problem is that all of these essays, even though they are not signed, had to be run by the top leadership of the church, i.e. the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency, to get their imprimatur of authority before they were published on the church website which means that all of the leadership of the church have read the essays, which means that all of the leadership of the church know the messy issues that are talked about in the essays, which means that none of the leadership get to claim plausible deniability on knowing these issues and that the apologists who still want to make that claim on their behalf should be disregarded at this point. So the leaders of the church who know the messy issues, they know facts about church history that would seem to potentially controvert the divine nature of the Restoration. And many, if not all, of the foundational stories relating to the Restoration, whether it's the translation of the Book of Mormon, whether it's the restoration of the priesthood by Peter, James, and John, whether it's the First Vision, all of these episodes have messy facts that, if known to the general public, would make it less likely that they would believe in their authenticity than they would if those facts were omitted. And therefore, it is my belief that the leaders of the church, like Emma Smith, like Sidney Rigdon, like the other witnesses to the translation of the Book of Mormon, omit the facts from church history that would make it harder to believe in favor of telling a story that is more likely to communicate that these things and events are divine, just as the leaders of the church know them to be. And of course, I'm using that word know in quotation marks, as they sincerely believe them 
to be. So I think the psychology of miracles and the psychology of belief that I've been talking about as regards Emma Smith, as regards Sidney Rigdon, as regards the other witnesses to the Book of Mormon translation, is still going on today at the top echelons of leadership in the LDS Church. Now, I'm not trying to say it's okay that the leaders of the church keep the truth from the members. That is not okay. I'm not trying to say it's okay that the leaders of the church misstate aspects of church history and even current history in order to support their claims of being prophets, seers, and revelators. I'm not saying any of those things. What I am saying is that when it comes to the motivations of the leaders of the church in omitting information and in making the misstatements that have been documented time and time again on this podcast, I think that they are probably not doing it because they know the church is a fraud and they're trying to defraud intentionally all the members for some nefarious purpose, but that the leaders of the church are omitting the information and misstating information because they know it's true. And this is why they say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I do believe that the leaders of the church have good intentions when they are not completely honest and upfront and transparent with the membership of the church and with the world in general. But the fact that it is motivated by good intentions does not make it any less wrong. So that's it for this episode. That's it for this series on magic and Mormonism. Once again, I want to thank all of my listeners who have donated to the program. If you like what you are hearing here at Radio Free Mormon and you have not yet donated, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now, click the donate button, and make a monthly continuing contribution today. $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. At the end of the first two episodes, I have played songs from the Broadway musical Pippin. I'm going to continue that idea with the closing song today. I said closing song, didn't I? Boy, you can take the boy out of Mormonism, but you can't take Mormonism out of the boy. The outro song is a showstopper from Pippin. It contains wonderful advice, and if the voice of the singer sounds a little bit like Irene Ryan, who played Granny in the Beverly Hillbillies, it's probably because that's exactly who it is. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for your support. This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. When you are as old as I, my dear, and I hope that you never are. You will woefully wonder why, my dear, through your cataracts and catar, you could squander away or sequester a drop of a precious year. For when your best days are yester, the rester twice as dear. What good is a field on a fine summer night if you sit all alone with the weeds? Or a succulent pear if with each juicy bite you spit out your teeth with the seeds? Before it's too late, stop trying to wait. For fortune and fate, you're secure of. For there's one thing to be sure of, mate. There's nothing to be sure of. Oh, it's time to start living. Time to take a little from this world we're given. Time to take time, co 
wondered if I was afraid when there was a challenge to take. I never thought about how much I weighed when there was still one piece of cake. Maybe it's meant the hours I've spent feeling broken and bent and unwell, but there's still no cure so heaven sent as the chance to raise some hell. Everybody, oh, it's time to start living. Time to take a little from the world we're given. Time to take time, or spring will turn to fall. In just no time at all. Now when the dreary's do attack and a siege of the sands begin. Stalwart and steady. Give me a night that's romantic and long, and give me a month to get ready. Now I could waylay some aging roue and persuade him to play in some cranny, but it's hard to believe I'm being led astray by a man who calls me Granny. Troubles and tears by the score, but the only. 